I'm Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, we're honored to have as a guest one woman whose life and career are the embodiment of purpose-driven leadership. She's not only a distinguished economist, best-selling author, and a true advocate for sustainable development, but also a member of Parliament. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to our show the remarkable Dambisa Moyo, Baroness Moyo of Knightsbridge, member of the House of Lords. Her journey is an inspiring testament to the power of purpose and resilience. Born and raised in Zambia and the U.S., she earned degrees at the University of Zambia, the American University in Washington, Harvard University, and even a Ph.D. in economics from Oxford University. And she's since become a globally recognized expert in her fields. She's authored bestsellers like Dead Aid, Winner Takes All, and she's a sought-after speaker on issues related to the global economy, foreign aid, and uh, we like to talk about the caring economy. So today we're going to delve into her extraordinary career, exploring the challenges she's faced, the opportunities that she seized, and always how she's stewarding her work as a member of the House of Lords in the UK. Welcome to the caring economy, Dambisa Moyo. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. We met last year um, here at the British Consulate where I worked during the day, and I was just blown away by you, your story, your presence, and your your purpose. I wonder you might, as we do with all of our guests, Ambisa, talk a little bit about, maybe two or three minutes about your life journey, how you got where you got, grew up, um, maybe some pivots along the way, and then we'll jump into it. First of all, at a very high level, it's a team effort. I mean, you know, it's I, it always strikes me as quite interesting that, you know, we show up and identify one person as being the embodiment of success or look at this person, go kind of thing. But actually, a lot of people have helped me. Um, I think most importantly, a lot of people who actually don't look like me, a lot of men, a lot of white people, people from different races. And it's it's turned out to be incredibly important. Um, as a driving force um, for for my career. Of course, many people who do like look like me have also been uh, early champions, um, my parents included, but you know, teachers, um, you know, professors over time, but uh, lots of friends, family, um, and and a lot of uh, yeah. peers who have been incredibly influential in that. I was born and raised in Zambia, Southern Africa, mm-hmm. as you uh, pointed out already. Um, I you know I, I like to say that my formative years, primary, secondary, and university were in Zambia. Um, and it's only later that that my career evolves to move into the uh, the West. I've been very fortunate. I've been able to travel to over 80 countries, rich and poor, developed and developing, democratic and non-democratic. And this has been highly influential in helping me form um, a lot of the perspectives that I have around economic development, about human progress, um, and also just about thinking about how we should mitigate some of the biggest challenges facing the world today, whether it's climate change or AI and, and ongoing issues around inequality. So um, that's kind of a broad a sweep um, from me. I mean, obviously, my doctorate in economics is, was quite pivotal in terms of uh, setting the stall for my academic career. But uh, I spent ultimately about 20 years in, uh, in uh, working in finance, um, 10 years working at Goldman Sachs, and then another 10 uh, as a board member um, on the board of Barclays Bank. So I've had very, very interesting experiences the last uh, sort of 15 years um, serving on global boards at a time that's been incredibly challenging for the world. Just the pandemic, but also economic growth stalling. Obviously, we're now 
challenged by a number of wars, financial crisis as well. I have to say, your grace with which you announce all those who've helped uh, along the way, I want to start there. Do you have any suggestions on how people can both be so generous with their time to others and how people need to sometimes ask for help? Because I found it incredibly and just inspiring that so many people helped you. I mean, clearly you're a bright, accomplished woman. You made it, you did it, you earned it. But how can we both be helpful to others and how can we inspire others to be helpful like others have been to you? What, what's been that sort of motivation, do you think, that got people to help? You know, I think a lot of it, and this was advice I, I received very early on, I think um, it, it's much more appealing and people are more inclined to help people who frame their requests in a much more pointed way. I think if you call somebody up who's incredibly busy and say, hey, I want you to be my mentor, help me. I mean, that's just far too generic. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, you know, you're essentially asking that person to do a lot of work um, in terms of uh, sort of a heavy lift and seeing how they might be most useful. I think mm -hmm. that, you know, the more that you you as an individual reflect on what you um, what your sort of mission or goal is or are, there are more than one, but also where you feel like you have gaps um, and using sort of your, your initial reach out to, to people as a way of explaining how they can be helpful. It's, it's so much more useful. We all have only 24 hours in the day. We've, got, we've been pulled all, all, all different directions by family commitments, by work and, and other engagements. And so the more you can say, look, you know, I've, I've done X, Y, and Z, where I could really use your help is connecting to person Y or thinking about um, what sort of think tanks to be involved with or thinking about whether there are certain organizations that you think I should be affiliated with. That, that's just a bit more pointed. So I think one of the mm -hmm. mistakes young people make, I made it myself, um, is uh, you, you sort of just send a message, I don't know, to Jeff Bezos or the king, asking for uh, for him to be your mentor and you know it doesn't really I don't think it really lands well for people who are incredibly busy and also just have a lot of demands on their time yeah I agree I do a lot of coaching of people at young and old and I say to them it's not helpful for me or anyone else when you say I'm not sure be very specific then it becomes very actionable for the person if you say I'd like to be connected with this person to this end I see you're connected can you help that's a very easy ask, right? Exactly. While the people think that they're being helpful, they're really not. So I, I agree with that. Um, I wonder if you might give us an example when you were perhaps a young student at University of Zambia or in your career. I know you started out with chemistry, but then you made your way into business and finance. So was there perhaps an example there where someone sort of coached you a little bit or helped you sort of rethink? Or how was that transition made? Well, you know, I'm very fortuitously, I grew up in a home um, with uh, parents who were educated. And I say fortuitously because my parents were two of the first graduates, Black graduates from the University of Zambia. Um, and that meant that our home was full of lots of debate and argument uh, about economics and politics and geopolitics and thinking about the transition that uh, Zambia in particular, but more, more generally emerging market a country countries have had to, to uh, sort of uh, traverse um, over several decades. And that was incredibly helpful. I think one of the things I learned very early on was understanding that um, one, we don't have the answers. If we did, uh, it would have been solved a long time ago and all these things would have been solved. And I think the other thing I learned is just pattern recognition, thinking about mistakes that have been, have been made in the past 
whether it was the League of Nations turning into the United Nations and thinking about global uh, interaction today as an example. Um, I think it, there's a lot of, of learning there. But during the pandemic um, in 2020, I spent a lot of time looking back at the pandemic in 1918 to 1920, thinking about the mistakes that might've been made then, the learnings that we could have today. And I think um, as young people, I think one of the mistakes that people make is that they go to school and they think they know the answer. They think, you know, especially they, they often think that older generations just don't get it. Um, and they, and <laughs> oh, you know, you're too old to understand. Don't know, yeah. don't, exactly. They don't quite understand that, um, you know, a lot of a, a lot of hard work and debate has already gone by. I mean, I, I, I will confess that uh, when I was preparing to deliver my maiden speech in the House of Lords in March of, of this year, 2023, um, I decided to go to Hansard and look back um, at, at other economists um, who had been elevated to the peerage um, and had delivered their own um, maiden speeches. And it was so humbling because, you know, I thought, oh, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to tell them about how it's important to have a global perspective and, you know, this tension, you know, on the role of the state and the economy and all this stuff. And reading back, you know, 20, 30, 50, 70 years prior was so um, sort of uh, humbling for me because I realized actually the ideas have already been put out there and then it, it sort of sharpens the thinking around execution. So where did the execution fall down? Um, but, you know, the ideas have been out there. I think it was Einstein who said the questions are the same. Uh, it's the answers that might be different. And I think recognizing that the world has been here before just engenders a lot of timidity in these issues. Absolutely. So when you, for example, when you went back and looked at earlier pandemics, what what did you sort of discern in terms of what might be different or what might be ways forward this time versus a century ago? Yeah, so I think the first thing to realize is that these are not analogous periods in, in some ways. I mean, you could say that, you know, of course, there are many more people. Um, there's a, a higher level of uh, per capita. Um, the, the, the last pandemic in, uh, in 1918, 1920, the, the estimate is somewhere between 50 to 100 million people died, obviously, uh, as a proportion of, of the population there, quite distinct from the numbers that we're seeing today. Um, and also just the speed of information, technology, um, the ability to deliver a, a vaccine. I mean, there are lots of things that made it different, but they still mm -hmm. did use masks. They did the quarantines. Um, and I think, you know, if you read somebody like John Barry's book or some of the other books, Pale Rider, for example, around this, I mean, there's a lot of learnings. Um, I think for me, the thing that stood out the most, and I think perhaps where we will look back and say, gosh, you know, we should have done better on this was, um, you know, was that we, we failed to really recognize that, um, sure, in, in the immediacy, it was a health pandemic, but actually mm -hmm. there were so many other aspects to it around knock-on effects in education, inequality, the economy, things that we're still dealing with today, inflation as an example of that, that meant it was never just a health pandemic. And so mm -hmm. I think that there should have been a quick recognition based on what happened in 1918 um, to 1920 that we should have had a, a much quicker coming together of sort of mm -hmm. a, a health a health SWAT team, um, but mm -hmm. then really quick follow through with a much more diverse in terms of experience and knowledge type of uh, of, of of team. Uh, and I think that that was a mm -hmm. big mess um, based on the information that I saw. 
And wasn't there, I believe in my country, there was a, um, there had been sort of a, a strategic effort by government to do sort of advanced planning for these types of things. And then it became underfunded in more recent years. I, I don't know if that is a accurate statement or if you know, but I'm more curious about going forward. Are you finding now that policymakers, government leaders are actually trying to do prophylactic type moves in policy and investments? Well, look, I think um, at a high level, we're hearing much, much more about prevention. Even in the National Health Service, people are saying, well, actually, on a cost-effective basis, should we be doing prevention rather than cure? Uh, you know, we're living in the era of a Zempec. Everybody's looking at healthcare costs and saying, well, actually, instead of waiting for people to have diabetes, you know, diseases you know, related to, to obesity, is there other things we can do early on to reduce the cost? So I think there's a lot of debate around that. I think ultimately... Like most public policy questions, it's not that um, there's a disagreement in principle. Uh, it all sounds very logical. Mm -hmm. The problem comes when we have to make trade-offs, um, you know, trade-offs between emergencies that are hitting in the in the moment versus making these longer-term um, commitments. And mm -hmm. look, I think there's no doubt about it. We were certainly bailed out by vaccines that were rolled out much sooner than they you know, have been traditionally. So there was a, certainly a benefit from that. But I, I think there should be no doubt about coming together, having a plan that's executable um, is, is, is sort of brass tacks. It's very basic. Um, but the ability to actually uh, implement that, that uh, plan uh, at a very high level to scale it, especially for something like a pandemic, which, you know, is either no boundaries, no borders around it. Ladies and gentlemen, again today on The Caring Economy, we're very thrilled to have as our guest, Dambisa Moyo. She's the Baroness Moyo of Knightsbridge and a member of the UK's House of Lords. Dambisa, you've got such a vast uh, portfolio of jobs, work, and books that you've written on global development, on resilience. I wonder if you could give us sort of a, a philosophical overview of how you look at the world in terms of your career, your work, and, and um, development, finance. Um, and then maybe jump into a few questions there. Yeah. So look, Toby, I'm so glad you asked me that question, because I think a lot of people look at my background or my work experience, and they say, oh, gosh, this person is her work, a, a portfolio, her oeuvre is very, uh, is very bitty. It's sort of, you know, she's doing corporate boards and she's doing House of Lords and she's doing investments and she's writing books. But to, to my mind, there's a, a unifying force of all my work, which is around human progress. Um, and I think what's really salient um, on all issues of human progress, whether we're looking at the risks and headwinds that may emerge from AI or from climate or the sorts of investments we need to make to continue to increase growth and includes includes uh, sort of increase the pie expand the pie um, I think those debates for me are enhanced um, the more you can have perspective from different uh, sort of sort of haunts and different uh, different places and so you know mm -hmm. again it may look bitty um, or it might be quite disparate but actually for me the question I'm asking about something like climate or energy transition um, is the same question but in different um, asking for different perspectives. So if I'm in the House of Lords, you, you get a perspective on public policy and the vested interests and trade-offs that are there. When I'm in a corporate boardroom talking about energy uh, transition, uh, I get the perspective from that. Similarly, when I'm on the Oxford University uh, endowment, when we're talking about uh, thinking about that portfolio, um, again, mm -hmm. it's a different perspective with different uh, trade-offs. Um, so, but you asked me about the philosophy 
And for me, really, the big philosophy, which is what I articulated again in my maiden speech um, for the Lords, was really is this whole idea of growth. Um, I think it, it has got a bad name in the last um, sort of uh, decade or so um, as being seen as uh, corrupted. Um, it's mm -hmm. sort of been seen as something that people pursued at all costs um, and actually were not concerned about inequality that came at the expense of, of, of growth. Um, there's a, a you know the question of about whether who actually benefits from that is it just uh, uh, all the benefits mm -hmm. of growth accruing to people who own capital a small uh, coterie or, or an elite um, versus you know broad based uh, economic progress issues around social mobility etc. But that's not to say that um, there's not work to be done around uh, the questions of social mobility and inequality, um, not just not just income inequality, but mm -hmm. inequality around education, healthcare, and access to public goods. Of course, there's a lot to be done there. But I, I do worry sometimes that, uh, you know, there's a risk that we throw the, the proverbial baby out with the bathwater, that we became mm -hmm. so anti uh, the whole notion of growth that, that it, it, we might have been... Uh, not recognize that actually, you know, if we stall and start to shrink, then we definitely will not be able to to deliver the life and improving uh, sort of sustainable life improvements that human progress warrants. Yeah, uh, I so admire that perspective. I think two things. One is um, it's about, yes, we need growth. It's a matter of uh, at what, spent, at what expense or at, to whose purpose and, and how it's done. So I like that you're there sort of helping shape in boardrooms and in parliament, um, the ways in which growth is activated. Um, the second thing I'm reminded of, I've just finished reading Walter Isaacson's great new book on Elon Musk. And you know, Musk is a controversial figure, but one of the things I had never heard stated before about him, and he's very philosophical, philosophical and committed to it it's sort of his er message is that he's not anti-growth or or development or uh which i think is a very admirable thing um but he's in his own little world whereas you from what i understand from your work you really are trying to bring more voices to that conversation versus being the sort of you know, maniacal or even maniacal person who's on top of the money and making the decisions about what's what right so I share that with you as some well, sort of, it's a great book if you want to read it. I have read it. Um, and I actually have uh, been with uh, Walter Isaacson and uh, and Elon uh, Musk in a, in a setting where they talked more about the motivations and some of the stuff that you've talked on. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think what gets lost in sort of superficial, you know, couple line tweets or whatever it is, um, is that he is very, Elon Musk is very mission driven. And I think that that's a lesson for all of us. I mean, he's not uh, driven by mm. money or, you know, uh, sort of the next yacht or the next jet or whatever it is. Uh, I think I, I think that's lost uh, mm -hmm. a lot of the sort of shorthand narratives that we see. And I think um, personally, I think, you know, notwithstanding his uh, foibles, we all do have foibles. We are human after all. Um, I mm -hmm. think it's great that we have not only uh, such a determined, uh, focused person dealing with some of the biggest, most seemingly intractable issues um, that uh, are plaguing the world today, things like telecommunications, things like uh, climate and energy transition. Um, but I also think it's particularly, uh, for me, um, sort of uh, inspiring that he's an immigrant from, from my home continent of Africa, came to the United States um, and now 
you know, is, again, the money to me mm. is quite immaterial. Mm. It sounds it's like it's immaterial to him also. It's only helpful as a tool mm -hmm. to be able to invest in many different other projects. But I think that that is a, a, such a, um, uh, a sort of uh, kudos to the United States for once again embodying mm -hmm. this idea that talent can come from anywhere on the planet, show up in the United mm -hmm. States. Elon is probably around my age and think mid-50s. Um, and in in such a you know short period of time can be so revolutionary and if not evolutionary in uh, in so many ways for for how we live yeah. and work and uh, for prospects of the future. So I, yeah. uh, I I I hope young people take a lot more about you know of that than the sort of you know controversial shorthanded points about about uh, about him. I agree. I mean, think about and this is a daily almost a daily recording now of the things he touches that are in our lives from uh, Neuralink to Starlink in Ukraine to the Tesla the truck that's going to be coming out this week and then SpaceX coming that he really is trying to find scalable solutions to renewable energy and a sustainable planet so um it's so easy to get lost in the celebrity and the 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 sort of I don't know the um the press right now about the man. So I really did value the book for that reason. And of course, I've also met Walter Isaacson and have great respect for the way he he just does his job. I wonder if you might say a little bit about, speaking with the immigrant point, you know, it's such a controversial issue here in the US and there in the UK, even with the small boats coming across the, the channel, immigrants here, this is a land of opportunity. It is the American dream. People come, but how, maybe putting your policy hat on, how, how do you, help guide government in thinking about immigrants uh, writ large and the ways to remain attractive and inviting, but also sustainable. Yeah, look, um, I, I, the, the best thing I could do on this topic is point you to what was for me a masterclass um, on the issue of immigration, um, I, uh, which, which was hosted in the House of Lords. It was a debate um, that was hosted. I, I can't remember exactly how many peers spoke. I think it was something like 75. All I remember is showing up early and staying until late um, because what it did was um, was around the question of immigration. It's public, by the way. So I really urge your uh, listeners and followers to, to, uh, to, to download it because I think it was a learning experience for myself. But what, what it did was to bring many different perspectives, not just political leanings, but different perspectives on the question of immigration. We had the moral perspective, which was offered by some of the archbishops. We had the legal perspective by a number of the lawyers, the economic perspective, a number of uh, former chances of the exchequer. Um, you know, we even had a, a sort of a, a, a contribution from the former prime minister. Um, uh, but it was just, it was a masterclass because I think, again, like most things in life, people more and more seem to be showing up and thinking they're authorities without really thinking about trade-offs and the balancing act that's required um, to, on many of these policy issues. So, I mean, obviously I'm not going to sit here and say I'm anti-immigration, I'm an immigrant myself. Course, yeah, um, so yeah. um, I, I'm very much pro that. I think it's great for the world. We just talked about uh, Elon Musk briefly. Um, I think that you know the, the benefits are numerous, um, but that being said, um, there are clearly costs of disorderly migration. Nobody benefits from that. We now, according to the IRC, the International Rescue Committee, which is run mm -hmm. by David Miliband, um, I believe we're close to 80 million people who are displaced um, or refugees. Mm -hmm. And it's a record um, which, since the book started being collected. And I think mm -hmm. 
you know, just that that sort of uh, breakdown in process um, is actually, it doesn't really behoove um, the, the receiving country. Um, it's a loss to the country, uh, the, the, the sort of uh, home country, but also the, the individuals. Um, there's a lot of mm -hmm. trauma. I mean, you've heard of uh, the Pope talking about Lampedusa, the risks are enormous. And so, you know, threading this needle, I mean, I don't think it comes in packaged in one soundbite. Um, and I, again, I think that that for mm -hmm. me, I had a lot of learnings, um, you know, that in that uh, debate uh, in the House of Lords around immigration, because I, of course, because of my background was coming, I come to this issue of immigration largely influenced by, by economics. Um, but there's so many other aspects mm -hmm. and facets that are very important. The healthcare implications. Yeah. There's an enormous swathe of things, and and this is one once again one of the things I really love about being in the House of Lords. I really value what you just shared. I'm going to work with your office to get a link or find the way to share with our audience yes, the, um, the recordings. When I think about rails or about immigration, we're pro-immigration, um, but we also need guardrails. My words, not yours. I think it all comes down to how do we as leaders, you as a leader, media, or is it, how do we bridge people together on these difficult issues? And I wonder, A, do you agree with that concept of a need for greater emphasis on bridging leadership? And B, how do you do it? You do it so well, whether it's in a boardroom or in parliament. I wonder if you have any sort of reflections on how to increase that sort of bridging leadership in all of us. Yeah, look, I think it's certainly gotten harder um, in tragically, it's gotten harder um, because when I think about going to university um, 25, 30 years ago, um, there was a fundamental belief that it was a place of competing ideas and um, you know, people really looked at intellectual argument, um, you know, whether it was in the debate councils or uh, more generally when we would interact in the student late night and student bars. I mean, people had different views and that was acceptable. There was not a sort of uh, negative motive or malice imputed in uh, somebody having a different view. Um, and I, I, I deeply regret mm -hmm. that it sounds mm -hmm. to me, I mean, I'm not, um, I'm not a professor, I'm not a student, I, I, I don't have children, so I don't have a lot of great visibility in what's going on in universities. But, you know, I am on an endowment of a university, I spend a lot of time going as guest speaker to universities, and it sounds to me that there's been sort of lost um, sort of um, skill in um, not just being uh, sharpening our arguments when we make arguments, making sure that they're data supported or that they intellectually have that veracity to, to withstand debate, but also tolerance, tolerance of other mm. people's views um, without, you know, as I said, imputing a, a motive of, of malice or trying to undermine. Um, and I think that's a great loss for society. And I think the great caution for the U.S. perhaps more than other Western countries, because I spent time in, in I lived in Paris a little bit. I've um, obviously been in, in Britain and traveled to many uh, Western countries. But I would say in the U.S., I worry a lot that we're building um, and investing in an, a system of argument that um, I, I, I'm not saying at all that it has no uh, sort of relevance. But I worry that we're, we're not building people who are bulletproof to live in the in the real world you know 90 percent of the world's population lives in the emerging markets um and the the their their needs and priorities are quite different um from a developed mm -hmm. country like the united states and so we don't understand the balancing act of something like the energy transition um and trade-offs mm -hmm. around that as an example 
then we're producing people who, uh, you know, at university or in society who have one dogged idea that is not really nuanced. And when they are let out of university, they are going to be confronted by realities and maybe even dismissed. Mm -hmm. And yet they got, they mm -hmm. may have good views, but they will be dismissed for not having a tolerant or, or sort of subtle understanding for the complexity of these issues. Now I'm being quite broad based. I've given you my disclaimers. I'm not, you know, I'm not a student. Uh, sure. but I think that that's a great loss um, in society. And so what can we do about it? I think what you're doing is critically important. We, we have to use other tools, other mechanisms to reach people um, you know, having these sorts of conversations and saying, you know, I, I may even be on your side, but how do we respond to this different uh, community, a different perspective on the same issue? Um, I think mm -hmm. that that uh, is increasingly uh, um, something where new platforms, new avenues for discussion and distribution of knowledge become very yeah. important. Yeah. You know, well, thank you for the compliment. I do try to use my podcast as that platform to be shared and to be inclusive um, and broadly to engage with the quote unquote other. And I think that's one of the secrets of a way forward I found in my life. If you just take an active interest, not passive and not false, but an active interest in the other, however you define that, and try to understand them, then I think you're better off, we're better off, but also it makes life much more interesting and adventuresome than just talking to the same old folks about the same old things in an echo chamber. Wouldn't you agree? That's, that, that is the baseline for my, my career. Um, yeah. You know, I wouldn't have been able to compete or to, um, to succeed in uh, publishing books, appealing to people who are in different perspectives outside of my home country, it, had I not listened to other people's perspectives. I, I wasn't raised in America. Um, and I think probably if you spoke to Elon Musk, he would tell you that's true for him too. He came here as an immigrant. You know, how do you learn to succeed in a different system? It's by listening and understanding that there's, you know, there may be a refresh, a re uh, sort of uh, rejuvenation of how you think about the way a system or a country or a community mm -hmm. works. I, um, I'm very mindful of your time. It's so precious and I'm grateful that you shared it. I want to ask you one last question, which is about your pearls of wisdom that you've gleaned through throughout your life and career. You've shared many already today, but I wonder if you have any sort of mantra-like statements that you give to young people or even people who are maybe dismayed or disrupted mid-career. Well, I think one of my favorite ones is uh, is this idea that no doesn't mean never. It just means not now. I think too many times I hear a young person, um, particularly minorities or women, especially with the sort of in the last several decades, who say, oh, you know, I, I, I was rejected from a promotion or I wasn't uh, given, uh, you know, a new job or access to capital or what, take your pick. Um, and I think we, we, you know, the instinct is to reach for it must be racism, it must be misogyny, it must be somebody who's out to get me. Um, and I, you know, I get rejected, you know, for many things. And someone told me a long time ago, no, doesn't mean never, it just means not now. And I think if you reframe mm -hmm. uh, your thinking and say, oh, gosh, you know, this is not somebody to, out to get me, they clearly don't think I'm equipped to take on or to, to do what I'm suggesting and have a, a much more humble and sort of a constructive approach to getting feedback. And so you go back to the people and say, listen, you didn't give me this job. I thought I was qualified. Could you just help me understand why I wasn't even mm -hmm. shortlisted? 
I think you would get a lot more visibility on not only how you can improve, but how you increase your chances of getting the position the next time. I mean, it's worked miracles for me, I must confess, because, you know, I too was a, a young, uh, sprightly sort of, uh, sort of uh, quite avant-garde young person where I was, well, somebody's trying to get me. No, it just means you're probably not qualified yet. And uh, it doesn't mean you can't be qualified, but you better ask the right question. Say, well, I'm not clearly not qualified at this moment. How can I become qualified? And I think there's so many fissures in society right now. We're missing out on, yes. uh, on getting better um, by uh, and, and actually getting more opportunities by just being a little bit more open-minded about the times when we do get rejected. Yes, I love that advice. I've often said it, no means maybe. Um, and also, I think particularly for younger generations, it's about if you think about these challenges and op as opportunities and try to be adventuresome and positive about it. So you're the person asking for feedback in a in a in an earnest in a really open minded way, then it's healthier for all. Because if you have a chip on your shoulder, you bring it into any room that you go to and it shows. Right. Exactly. And nobody wants to work with anyone who's got a chip on their shoulder. Nobody. Mm -mm. <laughs> no. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard today from the most remarkable Dambisa Moyo. She's the Baroness Thank Moyo you. of Knightsbridge, a member of the UK's House of Lords. And Dambisa, keep up the good work. I can't wait to listen to those recommendations you had. Me too, Toby. Thank you so much for including me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at TUsnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues. <laughs>